Well, my name is Andrew. Uh, I'm the campus minister here with, with RUF. Welcome, if, especially if this is your first time with us or visiting. Um, just We're really glad that you're here. And our hope for RUF is that it would be a place where uh, you can bring your beliefs and your skepticism, and that both would be met with honor and respect. And hopefully this is a place where you can bring honest questions, and you might actually receive honest answers in return. So that's our hope, that's our goal, that's our vision uh, for RUF in general. Well, tonight specifically, we're wrapping up this this mini-series that we started this semester off with called Tracing the Image of God Through the Story of Scripture. And we're actually in the in the fourth and final chapter um, uh, talking about renewal. And um, But before we jump into that, each week we've kind of chewed on this quote from a pastor named Zach Eswine who says that Christianity is an apprenticeship with Jesus toward recovering our humanity and through his spirit helping our neighbors do the same. And there are a couple of reasons why I've brought this quote up every week. The first is that repetition is the mother of all learning. The second is that repetition is the mother of all learning. And the third is that repetition, uh, I won't say it again, but repetition's great. It is the mother of all learning. There, I said it again. Um, but here's what I hope we learn by chewing on that quote over and over again. Jesus doesn't expect us to be more than human, but to be more human. And that's what we see throughout the whole story of the Bible um, ending and culminating here. And so, despite what you may have heard in the past, the Bible actually doesn't shy away from the goodness of being a human being, of being finite, of being limited. That's actually presented as a good thing in the scriptures. And so all of this brings us to tonight's topic, which is our fourth and final part of the biblical storyline, which is renewal. Renewal of all things from Revelation chapter 21. Before we dive in, uh, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we ask you tonight that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand these words of life, this vision that you have given your apostle of the life that is to come. We ask this in your powerful name. Amen. Well, before Chip and Joanna Gaines started to take over the world, there was this other feel-good home improvement show that came on Sunday nights on ABC. Some of you may have remembered Extreme Home Makeover. I hope I'm not aging or dating myself by bringing up Extreme Home Makeover, but if you've seen it, you know that it's the show that was hosted by Ty Pennington, and every episode featured a family that was in the midst of some sort of hardship or series of hardships. And they were in this house, living in this house that they love, but for a number of reasons, it, it wasn't serving them. It was in one way or another broken or in disrepair, and it was actually even working against them. Maybe it was too small for their large family. Uh, maybe the layout just wasn't right for the way they wanted to use it. And so the show would take this family and send them away on a week-long vacation to Disney World or to the beach, and in seven days... Seven days, this is mind-blowing, they'd completely renovate the house from top to bottom, and they'd turn it into the family's dream home, their forever home. And if you've seen this show, you remember that the most exciting, 
the most thrilling, the most tug-at-your-heartstrings moment of each and every episode is when the family comes back from their trip, they get picked up at the airport in a limo, the limo drives them to their hometown, and as they get closer to their home, they see that the, the streets are lined on either side with the entire town and all the crew and all the, the cameramen, everyone involved in turning their house upside, right side up or upside down, however you want to put it. And the limo would, would pull up in front of the house, except they couldn't see the house because of that giant tour bus that was blocking their view. So the family would get out of the limo, and everyone in unison, including Ty, they would all say, bus driver, move that bus. And then, then comes the moment. The, the, that's, that's it. That's the great reveal where the family finally gets to lay, lay eyes on their new home, their dream home, their forever home. And there's almost always this, this instantaneous, intensely emotional reaction. And you can just read it all over, all across their faces. Their jaws drop to the floor. Tears start flowing from their eyes. They, they, they put their hands on their heads because they can't believe it. This is our home. This is the house that we get to live in. And so all that joy, um, all that excitement, after the first glimpse of their new home. Well, here at the Bible, Jesus gives this revelation to his apostle John that is essentially this cosmic great reveal. And so we are like the families on the show, Extreme Home Makeover, we live, if we're honest enough and admit it, we live in the midst of hardship or maybe a series of hardships. We're living in a home, this world that we love, but again, if we're honest, we realize that it's a world that's been broken by sin and is in disrepair and actually it works against us. And here in Revelation chapter 21, Jesus has graciously moved the bus to give you and me a glimpse of what our future home, our glorious forever home, the home that we were made for, what it's going to look like, what the world was meant to be. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. And as we take this prolonged look at our future home, our forever home, I really want to ask four questions. You can follow along with me. And those four questions are, where will we be? Where will this forever home be? Who will we be with? What's it going to be like? And how do we get there? And I'm going to move this microphone. I'll move it back. Don't worry. But I feel like I'm blocked out from actually like being with you guys. All right, if it doesn't attack me first. So first, where are we going to be? Where will we be? And as we look at this passage together, at first glance, at first blush, it can kind of seem a little bit cryptic. I mean, look with me at the first two verses of chapter 21. This is the Apostle John who's been given this revelation. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All right, hold on. There's a lot going on. What in the world is going on? And as we read, we need to remember that we're reading what's called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. Don't let that word apocalyptic scare you. It's just the Greek word for revealing or revelation. So what we're reading is this revelation 
And this style, this genre of writing is filled with imagery and symbolism and things um, carry more meaning than what they, what they seem to carry just at first glance. So there's this highly stylized and symbolic vision of the future. And what I would argue is that both of these expressions that John uses, a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, they're meant to convey more or less the same idea. And that's this. What is happening is the world as it was and still is, as it's meant to be, that's what's coming down out of heaven. More specifically, what we see is this vision of of this world, this good world, perfected, renewed, as it was always meant to be. When the Bible talks about heaven and earth, or new heavens and new earth, um, it's kind of like a shorthand for talking about God's creation. And so if you think about it, what do we see in the very first verse of the Bible? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, in the beginning, God created everything. All that there is, is his creation. I think this is intentional. John's triggering that memory in us. We're talking about creation here. And so let me just repeat myself and drive home the point. Our future and forever home is not going to be this like far-off, distant planet, some other world. It's not going to be some other, more spiritual realm or dimension that our disembodied souls are going to fly off to. Our future and forever home is here, on this planet, on this earth, except it'll be a completely renewed whole earth. You might have uh, heard this weird line or part of a line in verse 1, and the sea was no more. don't want to spend too much time on this, but I, it helps us understand this point that the world that we're inheriting is this world, renewed. So the sea, to an ancient, to ancient ears, those who would have been the first recipients of this, of this vision or this letter, the sea represented all that was chaotic and disordered in the world. Um, most ancient Jews were landlocked, and so they've never experienced the sea, but they just knew of it as some vast, terrifying thing where sea monsters live. I'm not making this up. And then in this vision of Revelation, we're at the end of it, but in the middle of it, in Revelation chapter 13, the sea was the place where God's enemy, this great beast, came out of. And so here, when when John is saying the sea was no more, I don't think, and some would disagree with me on this, but I don't think we absolutely have to take this literally, as in you're never going to be able to go to the beach in heaven. I think we should take this, again, along the lines of the genre of apocalyptic literature as meaning nothing chaotic is going to exist in the new heavens and the new earth. Nothing disordered. The place where the enemy came from is going to be completely done away with. So again, this, 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 uh, where we're going to be, we're going to be here, not some otherworldly place, but in the creation renewed. And if you still don't believe me, you can take a peek at the next chapter, Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. And if you do, you'll see that the river of life and the tree of life make a second appearance, bringing our minds back to the Garden of Eden, the good creation at the beginning of the biblical storyline. I think we said a few weeks ago that God doesn't make junk and he doesn't junk what he's made. That's what's going on here.
And this is why uh, when Martin Luther, that reformer, the German reformer, was asked, uh, Martin, what would you do if you knew that Jesus would come back tomorrow? Allegedly, Martin responded by saying, I would go plant an apple tree. If you, if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, that the world as we know it was going to end, what would you do? Martin Luther's ex- response, supposedly, I would go plant an apple tree. What he's getting at is that there's going to be a continuity between the good world that God created and that we destroyed through our sin. That's the world that's going to be renewed. That's the world that we're going to inherit. If you don't want to take Martin Luther's words for it, just consider what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. What kind of a blessing or promise is it if Jesus is offering them something that's ultimately just going to fade away or burn up or be destroyed? It doesn't make any sense. The promise is that those who follow Jesus will inherit the earth. And so before we move on to the next question, two implications. One, our earthly callings and vocations matter. They carry eternal significance. So your studies here at Davidson, they matter. The jobs that you're going to enter into after Davidson, those matter too. In fact, there's a book um, that I had to read in seminary called The Heavenly Good of Earthly Work. That there's actually going to be continuity between what we're doing now and what we do in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the point of working is not just you know, make a bunch of money so that we can bless other people with it or invest in really spiritual things and give it all, all away to missions, as great as that is. But there's actually an inherent goodness to our callings here on earth. That's the first point. The second or implication, the second implication is Christians, those who follow Jesus, we should be at the forefront of caring for the environment. Because we know that it's more than just an environment. We know that it's God's creation. And that this vision shows us that his good creation is going to be renewed. Um, it's not like God hits the reset button and all of a sudden uh, we no longer are tied to Adam and Eve's original calling and vocation of being stewards of the world and stewards of the earth. We're still called to do that. Okay, so that's where we're going to be. We're going to be here. Um, second question, who are we going to be with? Look with me at the first part of verse 3. John says that he heard a loud voice from the throne, the heavenly throne room, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Simply put, we're going to be with God. When John uses the word dwelling place, that's one word in the original Greek, it literally is translated as tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is with man. And the tabernacle was that place, that tent of meeting, where God's special presence dwelt, and where the the priests, the Levitical priests, the Aaronic, Aaronic priests, could go in and meet with God. And the high priest could go in once a year, on the Day of Atonement, and be in the Holy of Holies, and be in God's presence. What this vision that Jesus gave John is saying is that God's special presence is going to be everywhere. 
and that we're all going to be able to experience it. In a sense, we all are going to be priests and have the rights and privileges of priests. This is what, this is what Peter said when he said that we are um, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we're going to dwell with God just like Adam and Eve dwelt with God in the Garden of Eden, how they were able to walk with him and talk with him. Verse 3 here says that God will dwell with us. So what I want us to see is that Jesus is restoring the very best part of creation, that we are going to be with God. And we need to remember that in the context of this book of Revelation, uh, the God that we're talking about is always the triune God. It's always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you can go and look from Genesis or from Revelation chapter 1 all the way to the end in Revelation chapter 22. All three persons of the Trinity show up. God the Father, the Lamb that was slain, and the Spirit. So the point is we will dwell with the Trinity forever in perfect love and acceptance and community because the triune God is perfect love and perfect acceptance, and perfect community. So we're going to be with God, but not only that, we're going to be with all of God's people. That second part of verse 3. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We're going to be with all of God's people, and if you were to look back a few chapters to Revelation chapter 7, what, what you'll notice is that God's people are the most diverse community the world has ever seen. I'm just going to read you a few verses from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. So John sees, he says, he says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Truly biblical Christianity that has Christ at the center is the most culturally and ethnically diverse faith that the world has ever seen. And so if you've ever been discouraged by how homogenous or monochromatic Christian groups can seem or churches can seem from time to time. If you've ever lamented the fact that 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning really still is the most segregated hour in our country, if that still doesn't sit right with you, remember where we're heading. This faith that began with just a small group of Jews on a tiny strip of land between Africa and Europe and Asia, has reached and is continuing to reach and spread out to all the four corners of the globe. And this vision of of our forever home is going to include people from all tongues, all tribes, all nations, living together with no sin, with no bigotry, with no racism. It is the perfect community. And so before we move on, I just want to, just want to highlight the fact that what we see here is that the great commission that Jesus gave his disciples, his apostles at the end of Matthew's gospel, it's been fulfilled. 
disciples had been made from all the nations. They're all worshiping the lamb that was slain. So that's who we're going to be with. We're going to be with God. We're going to be with all of his people from all the nations. What's it going to be like? And really, I want us to see two things. It's going to be both wonderfully familiar and also unlike anything we've ever experienced before. So look with me at verse 5. This is going to show us that, that our future home is going to be wonderfully familiar. Jesus, the one who's seated on the thr- throne, says to John, Behold, I am making all things new. And we really need to pay attention to Jesus' choice of words and the, word, and the order of his words. He doesn't say, starting with the word order, he doesn't say, I'm going to make all new things. He says, I'm going to make all things new. This isn't the language of new construction. This is the language of renovation. He's going to make all things new. And, and consider that choice of words. All things. Not some things. Not most things. He's going to make all things new. What kind of stuff falls under that category? People were things. Animals? Yeah. Trees, plants, uh uh-huh. The weather, climate, time, history itself. All things. All things are going to be made new. So here's the point. God salvages and restores every single aspect of his creation. This is what um, Paul explicitly says in Colossians chapter 1 starting in verse 19, he says that Jesus' death on the cross doesn't just apply to you and doesn't just reconcile individuals to God. It reconciles all things to God. Colossians 1, verse 19, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God is reconciling all of his creation to himself through Jesus, through his sacrificial death on the cross. The new heavens, the new earth, they are going to be wonderfully familiar because it's this creation that's going to be renewed. Um, years ago when I was here as a student, um, I played on the golf team. And long story short, I missed my one and only chance to play Augusta National. The team was playing in a tournament down in Georgia. I didn't make the travel squad, so I got work done. But then when my teammates came back, I remember, I distinctly remember during a morning workout, a couple of them saying, Andrew, you're not going to believe it. Coach took us to go play Augusta National before our tournament. It's like, you're right, I don't believe it. And he said, no, really, um, there's some... Davidson alumni who are members at Augusta National. And those of you who are not golfers, I'm just assuming everyone knows what, what Augusta National means. Augusta National is like, it's, it's the most exclusive, the most like pristine golf course in the entire world. Like, I don't know if this is true, but like people like Bill Gates, like they're the kinds of people that join Augusta National. Um, so yeah, I've got no chance of playing there. Missed my one and only chance. I confirmed it with my coach. He assured me, Andrew, don't worry. We're going to go back to that tournament. We never went back to that tournament. Um, so 
for a while, I was, I was actually pretty, pretty bitter about it. Um, true, true talk here. Um, but eventually, eventually I realized I'm going to play it someday. I am. I was talking to a buddy of mine who's also in ministry, um, and who's also a golfer, and he never, he's never played Augusta, and I was like, hey, I was just thinking about this the other day. The new heavens and new earth means that, hey, we can, we can go play Augusta National someday. And he didn't laugh at me, which was great, because I thought it was kind of funny, but, <laughs> but he was like, yeah, no joke, and we won't, like, cuss and swear after shanking the ball off into the woods. <laughs> We can discuss whether or not we're all, always going to have hole, holes in one on every single hole in the new heavens and new earth. I've got an opinion on that. Talk to me later. <laughs> it's going to be wonderfully familiar. It's going to be this earth renewed. But it's also going to be unlike anything we've ever experienced before. Look with me at verse 4 of Revelation 21. This is amazing. It says, He, speaking of God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Can you even imagine? Can you even imagine life without any pain, without any death? If you keep reading in Revelation chapter 22, it says nothing will be accursed. Nothing but blessing and life and flourishing. No thorns and thistles. No sadness. Can you even imagine? Uh, at the end of Return of the King, obligatory Lord of the Rings reference here. Uh, at the end of the Return of the King, after the ring has been destroyed and the fires of Mount Doom and the land of Mordor, um, Sam, the hobbit Sam, he wakes up and he sees Gandalf for the first time. For the first time since he saw Gandalf fall into the mines of Moria to his death. And he wakes up and he's elated. Here's Gandalf, his friend whom he loves. And full of wonder, Sam asks, Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? If Sam had asked Jesus that question, his answer would be, yes, Sam, it is. I don't know how it's going to work. Um, I kind of like C.S. Lewis's hypothesis, which I'm going to share with you now. This is not the inerrant word of God, but um, C.S. Lewis was a smart dude. In his book, uh, The Great Divorce, he's got this wonderful line. And it goes something like this. He says, Some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. You ever felt that way? No future bliss can make up for this suffering. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. I don't know how the agony of my Grandpa Santos' cruel death to cancer, I don't know how that's going to be turned into glory, but it will. I don't know how 
the agony of your parents' divorce is going to turn into a glory, but I know that it will. I don't know how the agony of that chronic health issue is going to turn into a glory, but it will. If Jesus really has risen from the dead, then this is going to come true. This is going to happen. Again, I don't know how. But it might be, like C.S. Lewis said, that heaven will work backwards and turn all of our agony into a glory. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good to me. And so, brings us to our last question, how do we get there? And what we see here in Revelation 21, especially in verse 2, is that we don't get there by going up, but by God coming down. Verse 2 says that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is going to come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. The holy city, that, that, that place where glory is, where God's glory is, is coming down to us. This is the ultimate hope of the entire Bible. And this is what separates Christianity from every other religion. It's not a religion of human ascent, but of divine descent. I can't say it any better than Mike Williams in his book, Far as the Curse is Found, so I'm just going to quote him. This is a theologian, seminary professor. He says, The biblical hope is not one of man going to God. It is not the story of the ascent of man. Rather, it is the story of God coming to man and man's createdness, redeeming both man and the creation. In short, the biblical hope is the descent of God. And so this is really what is so infuriating about the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially to capable, hardworking people like you and me, or people that want to be seen as very capable and hardworking like we have our stuff together. We need to listen to Mark Twain when he says, I brought, we brought this up in freshman Bible study earlier this week, last week, We need to listen to Mark Twain when he says that heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Heaven goes by the unmerited, undeserved favor, the grace of God. If it went by merit, none of us would go in, and Fido probably would. So we inherit this promised new creation, not by our striving, but by our resting, and not by our reaching, but by our receiving. So, what are we supposed to do? Are we just supposed to sit around and wait? Are we supposed to just let go and let God? Not at all. What the whole Bible, and especially Revelation, show us is that we have to put our faith and trust in the Lamb who was slain. We have to put our faith and our trust in He who is the first fruits of the new creation that his bodily, physical resurrection from the dead signifies and seals that we too will be raised to everlasting life if we put our hope and faith in him. Before we close, I want to go back to the Extreme Home Makeover. It's true that the best part of every episode for the viewer is the great reveal. You get to see the looks on their faces of joy and excitement. But that's not the best part for the family. The best part for the family is what happens next, 
after the cameras turn off and the crews go home and all the people go back to their homes and they get to enter into and live in and make memories in their beautiful new forever home. And so as we wrap up our series on the image of God through the story of Scripture, what we see is that the best part of the story is still to come. The best part is us getting to live out the future reality promised and prophesied here at the end of Revelation, which is going to begin when Jesus comes back. And so what we need to do is to look for Jesus, is to look for him to come again is to cry out, as Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. And to cry out at the end of Revelation, come, come quickly, come, Lord Jesus, come. Because we want you to make new and make right everything that you've created, everything that's been tainted by sin, and we want to live in it forever. So if you are hungering for that perfect relationship with God and with others, if you're looking for all pain and suffering and death to be eradicated, then look to Jesus and look to his second coming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we thank you for giving this vision to your servant John um, of this beautiful new home that you, through your son Jesus, have prepared for us. Lord, help us to look forward to that day. Help us to cling to Jesus and to trust that what he did on the cross 2,000 years ago really did usher in a new creation, and that as surely as he was raised from the dead, that this vision is going to come about. So help us to look to you. Lord, we do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.